welcome back to the Global Digital Banker. My name is Adele Grissoff and this is RFI Group's podcast focused on key trends, market insights, thought leadership and best practice within the fast-growing and dynamic world of digital banking. With trust in banks to hold the privacy and security of personal information higher than any other type of institution and twice as high as new digital-only or fintech companies, the episode this week will focus on how digital-only providers can position themselves as a main financial institution to consumers. Our guests include Anne Bowden, CEO at Starling Bank, and Eric Wilson, CEO at Zinja. Sarah Hollinshead, Head of Content at RFI Group, caught up with Anne Bowden to discuss Starling Bank's new marketplace offering, as well as how they're championing customer experience, engagement and trust to drive the MFI relationship amongst consumers. Really excited to be joined by Anne Bowden, CEO of Starling Bank. Welcome, Anne. Thanks so much for joining us on The Global Digital Banker. This week, we are looking at digital-only propositions and in particular, how to become that main financial institution for customers. Starling Bank, obviously one of the UK's most prominent and fast-growing digital-only challenges. Um, So to kick off, you have loads of exciting recent announcements around your marketplace, offering customers access to a much wider range of products and services, such as investments, loans, mortgages, insurance, pensions, to name a few. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that and the catalyst behind them? Hi, Sarah. It's great talking to you today. First of all, um, Marketplace. We're very, very excited that our Marketplace is now filling up with lots of exciting financial products for our customers. As you know, Sarah, our model is to provide the world's best current account, and we do this by linking to payment schemes and card schemes. And what we do is collect lots of interesting data around those transactions. And when we have lots of data, we can give our customer insight to help them manage their money. This is great because the first time we're giving the power back to the consumer so that they can make their own decisions about what they want to do in terms of their financial planning. And our marketplace is full of products that the customers can choose. With the data, the customer can choose the right products. And we share the data in a very secure way that allows the customer to permission certain financial products to see that data so that both parties can work in a way that is really supportive of the customer relationship. So we are very excited that the first couple of partners have gone into our marketplace. And like every good marketplace, it's, it's it's about having interesting products that the customers can browse. And our role is to create those products and make sure they're totally the right sort of products for our customers and they can buy those products in a very, very supportive way. And so there's there's no doubt that the service you are offering and the range of products is, is just incredible, you know, real innovation in the market. If you could talk more about the experience of being a digital-only bank, how are you onboarding your customers and, and driving that communication, building that rapport with your customers, obviously, when you only have those digital channels? How have you found that experience in the launch into the market? And, and how do you make it really personalized and, and meaningful for your customers? We get asked this question a lot. Well, do our customers have a relationship with us? Yes, they do. Most engaged customers open their app more than five days out of every seven. Um, So those customers get a lot of feedback from each and every transaction. 
And that's great in engagement. And the traditional high street banks have never had that sort of level of interaction. So, you know, in the event of a problem, we're there for our customers 24 by 7. We're there on chat, we're there on email, and we talk to people on the phone. And therefore, that's the best of both worlds. And they're talking together as a group of people on our community as well. We have a very, very vibrant community of people who get together to talk about how we can make um, Starling even better. You are arguably with the data and wider access to data and, and the amazing technology we have in terms of analyzing that, you might be able to know your customers more than just a person walking into a shop, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and we can tune what we offer to customers to their needs. And data is very powerful. Mm. You know, I spent 30 odd years in, in the industry, in an industry where we had lots of data, but we weren't able to use that data to help customers. Mm. We had quite feeble attempts, to be honest, to cross-sell and upsell. And many of those attempts ended in not a good outcome for consumers. Mm. For the first time ever, we can take all that data, rich data, explaining somebody's financial life, and really put their hands in the of the consumer to help them manage their financial affairs. Mm. And so our research shows that consumers still rely quite heavily on physical channels for things such as product application and resolving problems, especially around investment and in, in seeking advice. So how do you address that as a potential issue? And do you see that continuing to be an issue? Well, we have the best of both worlds at starting. We have a by current account bank banking checking accounts mm. and this is where an automated technology driven service can take the real strain out of your day-to-day banking affairs and then we link in a very seamless way to financial providers in our marketplace and those financial providers providing more long-term solutions and financial solutions to our customers may have different engagement models we are sitting in the heart of that making sure that the customer gets good value and gets overall good, all-round financial picture of their affairs. But we find that our interaction with customers and the trust that's building between all these parties in this new ecosystem is very, very powerful. Um, We have a vibrant community out there, um, the fintech community, the partners we're working with. We're Mm -hmm. all together trying to change financial services for the better. This is a very trusting environment and we hope our customers benefit from it because trust is an interesting one it's something we at rfi group are seeing as becoming more of a commodity for banks in this world of you know fintech versus incumbents or however you want to view it and so maybe you could talk more specifically around how you're encouraging that trust and how you're bringing customers in to see you as their main bank the first thing is that Organizations such as ourselves are transparent. Mm. People out there understand our models, our finance, our, our, our value chain. People, there's much more discussion about how we do things. People are shining a light on us, and and in that sort of environment, we are very transparent. And I think trust is building. But how do we get people to use us more and more and love the service? Yeah, I get asked the question a lot about: Are you the main bank? Are people switching? Um, and I think this is a very interesting question. First of all, there's a quite a, an old-fashioned idea that people have one bank account and they have that bank account and they occasionally switch. That's not the case. Um, many people um, have multiple bank accounts that they use for different things. 
And this is very inefficient. Mm. And what we have done in Starling is create the concept of goals. And that allows um, an individual to have one a bank account with us and segment the spending into different pools of spending mm. and replaces the need for multiple bank accounts. But moving back on to pass and switching, in the UK, we have a concept called the current account switching service, which means that people can switch from an existing provider to us in a very seamless way and it's guaranteed to work. In that environment, what we find is a certain amount of the population immediately see us are recommended by a friend mm. and it's very much a referral market and the friend tells the friend this great bank called Starling uh, and they're using it for all their business and that friend will switch mm. then you'll have all so that the, the majority of people will start however using us for a, a certain proportion of their income or a certain proportion of their spending where they find that ourselves much more convenient and then after a couple of months, they realize that we have so much more to offer and they'll decide to switch. But we are not in the market of or demand that our customers only bank with us. This is a world about choice. Customers deserve to be able to choose the best banking partner. And we don't demand our customers only bank with us, but we find that customers tend to migrate to us over a couple of months period. Because there was a lovely blog post about a customer that left their bank of 28 years to Starling Bank. So obviously an example of someone who did just have one main financial institution. But you mentioned convenience as a main driver for that switching. But do you have any further insights into why people are coming over to the digital only proposition in particular, Starling Bank, and sort of insights into their previous experience? Typically, people are recommended by family and friends. See the aesthetic quality of the app. Now, it looks good. You get lots of information um, with very, very good value when you're traveling overseas. And that individual described the benefits that they see in the bank. And a different individual may describe a different set of values, a different set of benefits that they see. And those people will swap across, start using Darling, and then over time discover all the other features. Um, we find that we have people from all parts of the country. We have all sorts of people from different sorts of professions, different sorts of demographics. And that wide range of people all see something slightly different in Starling. We have people that are managing on quite low incomes, that are using our budgeting features and watching every penny. We have people that are actually you know, quite wealthy. And what they are doing is using it to manage their overall financial affairs in a very, very convenient way with a bank that's there 24 by 7. And then you have people who are traveling and want to really get a good rate. All these people see different things in Starling. Final one. So banks and fintechs, who will win? Very, very good question. Starling is a fintech. That's a bank. So yeah. I think my answer is going to be a bit of an explanation about how I see the market actually evolving. Fintechs are actually coming up with very, very good solutions that satisfy consumer demand, offer great customer experience at fantastic prices. Yeah. Unfortunately, many of those models don't have a viable revenue model in the long term. The traditional banks will copy all the apps out there. Mm. You know, they'll be a couple of years behind, but they'll copy. But what they will do is actually copy those apps and actually put more technology and more layers on top of their existing infrastructure and existing cost base. They'll be 
doing the same sort of products at a high cost. We'll have the fintechs doing great things without a revenue model. Mm. And at Starling, we very much hope to have a viable business model. That means we can actually earn revenue because we are a bank, but we operate on a lower cost base. So we believe that value chain, revenue models, and innovation are all very, very important. Mm. I think the challenge of the next couple of years is not about innovation. It's going to be about cost base. And will the big banks be able to cut their cost bases so they can compete with new entrants? It's an interesting one. So I guess you're basically saying, Anne, if you're a bank and a fintech, then you're going to win. Like Starling. (laughs) Of course, Sarah. Why wouldn't I? Chloe James, Group Media Director at RFI Group, spoke with Eric Wilson about their equity crowdfunding and customer acquisition approach and their expansion plans for the near horizon. Eric Wilson from Zinja here on the RFI podcast. So great to have you on, Eric. Wonderful. Thank you for having me, Chloe. I appreciate it. Well, I mean, you've had an absolutely incredible journey so far and and we're really thrilled to have you on. Um, We were just discussing it, but obviously very recently, ASIC, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, has approved the country's first of the seven equity crowdfunding licences and Zinja, your company, being the first startup to roll out an equity funding campaign. Can you tell us just a little bit about that journey and what that was like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, it was incredibly exciting. We've been, uh, you know, really quite amazed and a little humbled by the by the response we've had. So we'd always planned to um, to do a crowdfund for Zinger. So Zinger is, is Australia's first fully digital built for mobile neobank, and one of the uh, assuming we get licensed, um, one of the key things around that is uh, neobanks are built for their customers. So they're built around their customers to fix their customers' problems. With their customers, you know, we have people in looking at our prototyping, you know, every week. And one of the core things about that is if if you're going to, use, going to ask customers to help you build the bank and you're going to ask them to be your customers, then why shouldn't they own a bit of it? So, yes, obviously the money's lovely and, you know, it's, it's very much appreciated. But for us, it's more about allowing our customers to be a part of this journey and, and to get some of the upside. You know, we, we got into it uh, in, uh, we were ready to go in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, ASIC sort of took us a little bit of, little of time and issued the first licenses to the intermediaries in January, and uh, and we launched uh, about the second week of January. We were hoping to get about five hundred thousand Aussie dollars. We ended up getting that in less than twenty four hours. Uh, we passed a million in about four days, and, and we're still going north. So uh, it's been an overwhelming and, and deeply humbling response. Absolutely. I mean, congratulations on that. And I think that goes to show, doesn't it, that I mean, I love the sort of almost surprise in your voice, but obviously that whole part of, you know, being a part of it and owning a part of it really resonated with your customers. Yeah, and we were really excited actually about the size of the average investment. So the average investment sort of sits quite firmly around sort of two hundred and fifty to five hundred dollars. Most of them were, were those sort of smaller amounts. Mm. And I know this may sound counterintuitive, but we were really excited about that because it means lots of people who want to use the bank, they want to be, have a piece of it. Mm. You know, it's really exciting to me that, uh, you know, that it's not sort of the big wigs and, 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 you know, the fat cats. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have a they have a, a vested interest and, and an obvious interest there. I love that you've brought up, obviously, Australia's first digital-only neobank, which is super exciting. And we've seen around the world, Obviously, there's, you know, the Atoms, the Starlings, Monzos, different banks. I'm particularly talking about the UK there, obviously. But 
interesting to be bringing that concept to Australia. How are you differentiating what you do? There's the obvious, you're digital only, but from the more traditional banks that we have in this market? Look, it's such a good question. And and I think the the trap we can all fall into, and I probably fell into it when I first started thinking about starting a bank, uh, Neobank two, two odd years ago, two, three years ago, is we assume Neobanks are around technology. And obviously, technology are a core fundamental part of it. You know, the amazing um, ability now to, to provide really high-end uh, banking type services with really much, much cheaper technology straight to a mobile phone. Obviously, that's a core part of it. But in my opinion, it's not actually the main part of it. The, the thing about neobanks, as I said, is, is the good ones, the ones that are really successful, are the ones that are built by their customers. So I guess when I used to be an old school banker many, uh, for, for a number of years, we'd, we'd build a bunch of products in the bank and we'd say, here you go, buy these products. And if you don't like them, don't care that much. There's only you know, another two or three banks that offer exactly the same product. Big deal. Oh. Whereas a neobank does exactly the opposite. And it's what I love about doing this job now is we can go to the customers. We say, okay, what do you need? What, what, are your, what are your finance problems? What are your banking problems? And then we go away and we, we make a solution and we take it back to them and go, do you like this? Or oh, don't like that much, Eric? Or actually, I really like that, Eric. Mm. And then we take that and we develop it and we develop it. And, and I think that's the, that's the core differentiator in brand and value proposition of Zinja to the rest of the banks in our market. You know, we built this with our customers and it's all about them and about saving them money. Mm. And I love it. We feel really good to go to work and do that every day. Yeah, I bet you can tell you love it. It's obviously just been such a success and I expect over the next 12 months even and then obviously beyond we'll see so much more. Something that's just sparked in my mind then is you've mentioned obviously neobanks around the world, UK and Europe, and you've you've spoken about how you kind of go to your customers and say, what do you want? What do you need? And we'll create it. When you think about innovating products and looking into innovation to, to sort of strengthen that position. Who do you look to for that? Obviously, you take it from your customers. Are there any other organizations that you look to and think they work really well innovatively? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I have to, you know, call out a couple of the, of the neobanks around the world that have been a real sort of guiding light to us and an inspiration. So obviously, Monzo, you know, just a remarkable story that the, uh, the, the bank, the neobank Monzo in, in the UK, they've got 500,000 customers. That's probably out of date now. They're growing at 7% a month. You know, and they have this rapid obsession with, with looking after customers. And when you talk to their customers, it's almost like a cult, you know, they love them mm. so much. With the bright orange card. That's it. You know, and I think you've got to, you've really got to take your hat off to them in the, you know, the idea that people would be rapid and excited about a bank. You know, if you'd said that before Monzo came on the market and actually proved it, you know, people would call you a, a liar to your face. I think, I think we've got to take a lot of kudos from them. The other bank that I quite like uh, and take some inspiration from is Atom, actually. So, you know, and they're sort of almost opposite ends of the innovation spectrum. You know, Monzo is super high, you know, customer technology and, and meet the customer's needs to the nth degree, which I love. And then you've got Atom at the other end, which I sort of have a grudging respect for in that, you know, they've taken the big bank model, you know, they're backed by BBVA. Uh, They've taken that big bank model and they've turned it into a really efficient, smart business. You know, that's got you know it's set up to make money, and I quite admire that as well. You know, if I think about how I'm trying to steer Zinger, it's sort of between those two pathways. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I, I saw Anthony Thompson present at a conference once. So chairman of Atom there and really incredible story. And I like that you've brought up that sort of commercial point there as well and, and how you're kind of trying to sort of sit between the two. So taking the best bits of a lot of the organisations that you respect and going, oh, you know, kind of cherry picking and, and 
forming your own in that way, which is incredible. Something I wanted to talk to you about as well, Eric, was trust, which is this is where this sort of fintech and neobank area and then the traditional banks, I guess somewhat different. I would just love your view on this. RFI's research is obviously, you know, very heavy in this space that, that banks are, you know, some of the most trusted organizations in the world when it comes to maintaining privacy and security of their personal information. That's at 42% for banks. And then we've got other statistics that say digital only banks and fintechs rank about seventh on the list at 20% when it comes to that holding and maintaining privacy and security. How will Zinja go about building comfort and trust in that neobank space in Australia when it's relatively new? What sort of things are you doing to, to really ensure to your customers that you are trusted and you will care for their information to the utmost degree? It's such a good question, especially in banking. I, I think banking has more, you know, trust has more relevance in banking than perhaps fintechs generally. Yeah? Mm. Um, you know, it really is the core commodity of a bank, and, and it has been since you know uh, since cavemen sort of started taking you know pebbles as a, 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 into a bank. It really is absolutely core. You know, one of the advantages we have, which is I guess a double-edged sword in Australia, is our financial services system is very, very heavily regulated, and just the ability to call yourself a bank here is very difficult. It's a very hard thing to do. It gives customers to some degree a sense that if, you know, when, when Zinja is allowed to call itself a bank, which we're not yet, but when we are allowed to, gives customers a sense that if you've got the word, then there's a level of trust to be placed just there. Yeah, because you've gone through all the processes, right? That's exactly right. And then there's a layer on top of that where the government in this country will guarantee a bank's deposits up to $250,000 per person. So again, you've got that level of comfort. You know, if, you, if you've got a mortgage with us and we go bankrupt, you probably don't have to worry too much because you've already got the cash. Yeah. But your deposits, much more important. And as I say, the government guarantees those up to 250000 I guess the next sort of stage of that, the sort of third layer of that, is time and experience. You can't, you know, there's lots of businesses and especially banks in our, in our country saying one thing and doing another. And one of the things that Zinja will set out to do is to do exactly what it says every time. So... We're not going to ask our customers to listen to us. We're going to ask them to look at our actions. You know? And if we maintain a safe environment, if we act in an ethical fashion and we do exactly what we're going to say and we're not the subject of a royal commission like many of the other banks here, then trust us by our actions, not our words. Yeah, perfect. And, and as you say, you know, the proof is in the pudding and time will allow that level of trust and I fully expect to see this as an absolute trend going forward. Talking about main financial institutions, because that's quite an interesting space. And your first product offering is this prepaid debit card. And I know that you're looking at launching deposits, credit card, mortgage products, as you've just mentioned there. In the long term, I guess, blue sky thinking, are you looking to really offer that full suite of banking products and, and then to be an MFI? Do you believe that Zinja can be an MFI for Australian consumers? Look, really, really interesting question here. I mean, in terms of where our financial markets are going, both in Australia and globally. So to answer the first part of that, absolutely. Zinja will offer a full suite of banking products uh, and services and very rapidly. So as I say, we start with prepaid card, mortgages, current accounts, and then you'll see a whole series of other, you know, normal, good, old-fashioned retail products be rolled out over the next sort of 24 months with, with the Zinja slant on them. Yes, Zinja could absolutely be someone's MFI. I think what's really interesting here is, though, we don't actually want to be anybody's MFI. We don't believe that that is the future of financial services, being locked into one institution, whoever it is, be it you know, one of the big banks or, or, or be it a, a digital provider. 
we, we think more of digital banking okay. as moving down a platform. So maybe where you know you choose as a as a consumer, you use Zinder as as your main source of information. You know, maybe you go actually, yeah, I've got my current account with you, I've got my mortgage with you. But what about superannuation or insurance or actually, I just want a different mm. a different current account. Shouldn't Zinder be able to give you access to those? So you know, taking the open data reforms, taking the data that we have from you, perhaps. And saying here are three or four curated superannuation funds or insurance products or wealth management services and give people that uh, the benefit of our experience, but not own those services. You know, I don't want anybody to ever say, oh, I only ever use Zinja and no one else, because that's not smart for them. Mm. I want them to go, yeah, I use Zinja for a couple of things. And actually, they put me onto a couple of other really good providers, even if they're competitors. Mm. And I guess that sort of comes to the core of what, of what we do at Zinja. It's about getting the best outcome for the people who bank with us. And to think we always have the best products all the time, yeah, it's just not realistic. Yeah. A really interesting response. I love that. It's um, interesting to think that an MFI could be, I guess, you know, broadened out and, and maybe there is no such thing as an MFI anymore. Maybe that's kind of changed somewhat and it's, as you say, using lots of different providers for lots of different things in your life. But the platform piece is important because, if you can have a platform with a multitude of organisations on it, that's absolutely beneficial. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm very hopeful within five to ten years the concept of an, of an MFI will be dead. Yeah. Oh, interesting. That's an interesting one to watch. Certainly something to pick up on there. We always like to finish with asking all of our interviewees on the RFI podcast about this sort of banks versus fintechs piece. And I, I would love your view here. Is it our banks versus fintechs? Is it a partnership piece? What, where do you come, Eric? And I guess within this question, you know, you're obviously heading up Zinja, Neobank Digital Only, but, you know, you are an ex-traditional banker, so you can definitely look at it from both sides here. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a, I find myself deeply conflicted because I, I think we are both a bank and a fintech. Mm. Look, I think the reality is uh, what I would like to see is I would like to see the fintechs win. I, I think I hold grave concerns in that I think, the banks will quite sensibly and quite legitimately within their rights seek to purchase, buy, take over any of the, the dangerous fintechs who, who may threaten profit lines. And I think there's a real risk that the fintechs will get eaten up by, by the banks here, which are mm. huge and powerful and, and incredibly wealthy. You know, and to be clear, they're perfectly entitled to do that. It's, a, you know, it's an open capitalist market. They're entitled to do that. But I worry for fintechs and their ability to to maintain their independence and to, and to stay strong and offer a, a genuine alternative. If you've leveled the playing field and if suddenly takeovers magically disappeared, I don't see how a high margin, a high cost business model, which is a bank's model in this country, yeah. could possibly compete against a fintech. Yeah. So perhaps there's room for everyone? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Listen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really incredible talk to you about everything that's going on in your world and sounds like you've got some pretty exciting times ahead if you look at the next 12 months what are you most excited about from a Zinja uh, perspective I want to once again be able to call myself a banker okay. which I can't do until the uh until April gives us our uh, grants us our banking license which I appreciate that may be an odd uh, an odd goal for most normal people <laughs> but for a, bank, a banking nerd like me I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to call myself a banker again Awesome. Well, good luck and look forward to look forward to seeing where that goes. Thanks, Thanks Eric. Lovely to talk to you. We hope you enjoyed the episode this week. 
To view the show notes from this episode, head to globaldigitalbanker.com. To get in touch with us, check out our Instagram, Global Digital Banker, Twitter at GDB Podcast, or on Facebook under Global Digital Banker Podcast. If you're interested in being a part of the show or would like to let us know what you think of this episode, email us at gdbpodcast at rfigroup.com.